Welcome to the DermVet Podcast. I'm Dr. Ashley Bourgeois, a board-certified veterinary dermatologist practicing in Portland, Oregon with animal dermatology clinics. I'm also a mom of two, just trying to find the balance like everyone else. Let's learn to ditch the itch, cytology, everything, and make derm more fun than frustrating. Today, we are going to talk about our feline friends and all of their skin issues. Feline dermatology is definitely a subject that can be frustrating for a lot of veterinarians due to limited options for treatment and just the difficulty that comes with trying to medicate cats. I'm so excited to have one of my really good friends, Dr. Eva Gans, on the podcast today. Eva is a cat dermatology lover. She currently is the head of the dermatology department at the Metropolitan Animal Specialty Hospital in Los Angeles, California. We were resident mates together and very excited to have one of my dear, dear friends on the podcast today. Okay, you guys, thank you for coming to another episode of the DermVet podcast. You have asked for it and we are giving it to you. Cats, more and more cats. Everyone always asks about feline dermatology. Um, we're going to be focusing on feline allergies today with one of my really good friends. Actually, I think one of the original people I really got to know in veterinary dermatology, Eva, I'm just so thankful and happy with your busy schedule and being a mom and um, that you have given some time to talk to me about feline allergies. So thank you so much for being here. Thank you for inviting me, Ashley. I'm really happy to be here. Um, always thrilled to, to talk to you and spend time with you and, and talk about cats, which are one of my passions. That's what, how I suckered you in. Like I figured that if I could, it was the same when I had Casey on. I'm like, if I can get you on about food, I know that's what you'll, you'll take the bait for. And I knew if I could get cats and you on board that you would do it because that's where your research was. And that's what I know is like a big passion for your, of yours. Mm -hmm. And really frustrating for a lot of people. You know, that's one of the biggest questions that I get asked about honestly is cats and there's so many limitations we have on cats and they're so different. So we can't really treat them necessarily like we treat our canine patients. And I don't know about you, but I actually feel like I'm starting to see more and more cats. Like I still see more dogs, but I feel like there's been a push of um, cats really starting to see more specialty medicine. Do you feel like you've seen that too? I think so. I think that, you, you know, there, there's a shift to, a, there's, there's many reasons, but there's a little bit of a shift to a more urban lifestyle away from a more sort of rural barn cat lifestyle. Um, and, you know, a lot of people are having cats instead of human children. And sure. so, you know, that, that frees up some resources, but also, you know, just more room in their life for loving their cats. So yeah, absolutely. Um, although they, they don't, they don't, they don't occupy the same space in veterinary medicine that dogs do, which I think is really sad. Um, I would, I would certainly happy to see the trend continue. Yeah. And I think honestly, putting more stuff out there like this, like, um, teaching veterinarians how to practice better medicine, medicine with them, even while we are still waiting for more therapies, we hope down the pipeline to come out that we really can still change their quality of life for the better 
so that we can feel more comfortable. I mean, I remember when I was a resident, um, when, you know, seeing cases for myself for the, uh, for the first time, when I would look through my schedule and see some cats on there, I'd get a little nervous because I saw so many more dogs, which mm. now I don't feel that way, obviously, because we are seeing more cats and just with more experience. But I felt nervous because I did feel like resources were limited as far as what I could do. Um, and so hopefully we can shed some light on that and continue that trend because I totally agree. We definitely know the number of cats we see compared to the cat population is smaller still, but hopefully mm -hmm. we'll keep pushing it in that right direction. So if we start thinking about cats and dogs and their allergies, um, what are the differences you think of if you're comparing what you tend to see with, let's just say any form of feline allergy and we can get more specific, versus what you tend to see clinically with dogs and their allergies? Yeah, I mean, I think we're all pretty well aware of how dogs manifest their allergic symptoms with licking their paws as a very classic clinical sign, ear infections that relapse, you know, rubbing their face, um, their armpits and, and their bellies. So we think that that's pretty well recognized by the majority of veterinarians. With cats, they manifest it differently. So they don't do the typical paw licking behavior that you'll see done um, by dogs. I kind of think of cat allergy lesions in sort of three groups. Um, and one cat could have all three of these. But you've got one group, which is your sort of bald belly cats. And so the only lesion that they might have is that they're bald on their belly. And some owners take a long time to notice this or they might think that that's how the cat is meant to look. So it's something that one might even have to point out to an owner if it's just a general physical exam that in fact there's meant to be fur on the tummy and if it's bald, that's, that's something that needs to be addressed. Um, the second kind of grouping is sort of the crusted papules, also known as miliary dermatitis, and excoriations and ulcerations. So some cats will have you know, facial excoriations or papules around their neck. Um, and, and those are things that we need to rule out secondary infection and, and parasites and all of those things. And then of course, the third grouping is the eosinophilic granuloma complex cats. So any cat at any time that's allergic could have one or, or more of those, but those are just kind of the, the categories that I tend to look for. Yeah, and I will say that um, when you think about the bald belly cats, which I do think is one of the most common things we see or that is seen in general by general practitioners for feline allergies, um, a lot of people don't actually think or like owners don't understand that they're itchy. Like, because either they'll, you know, cats are very isolated creatures. So whereas dogs might want to be by you and my own dog's having an allergic flare right now. And this morning I was like, stop it. Like, stop, stop looking your paws. Um, right. But cats often don't do that in front of us or because they're naturally groomers. Um, owners don't really know the fine line of um, what's over grooming. Like, when is it too much? And they'll come in for a bald belly and you'll ask them if they're itchy or they're over grooming. And they'll say, not really. Like, I just feel like they want to be really clean. And that's where we have to get creative with asking about our history. So instead of just saying, Oh, do they lick? Do they chew? Like I'll ask, you know, have they started losing hair? Do they have uh, excessive hairballs? Cause that's another thing that sometimes we'll see is that they'll get more hairballs. And I've actually had owners pick up on hairballs seasonally. 
Like, yeah. oh yeah, they just, yeah, which a lot of people don't think about because we would never ask that for like our dog patients. The only one which um, I, I know we're going to talk about a little bit later that uh, I do think is very different in cats, so we can see it in dogs, uh, like my subset fourth group for yours, though it's not dermatologic, so I totally understand why you wouldn't have it in, it's just the asthmatic signs, so like feline asthma, which we plan on talking about later, but that's one that, um, another just history question I always ask, mm -hmm. like, well, do they wheeze? Do they, you know, there's certain seasons that that seems worse than others because we do know feline asthma, especially if they concurrently have dermatologic signs, absolutely can be a manifestation of environmental allergies. Right, right. And I think that it's important to point that out to owners about sort of, I, I call it closet belly licking or <laughs> secret unknown belly licking. And um, a tool that can be helpful is for my uh, publication that I, that I did during my residency um, regarding itchy cats, we adopted the canine uh, paritis visual analog score for cat behaviors. So it will you know, list on that scale from zero to 10 what would be considered normal grooming behavior all the way up to you know, really terrible, severe itching. So I think that, that those PVAS values can be really important when taking history for, for both dogs and cats, obviously. Yeah. And I think the other thing that can be helpful is not all cat owners, but I feel like a lot of cat owners tend to be multiple cat owners. So right. then I'll compare it to their other cat. So like, mm -hmm. well, do you think, you know, the cat works fluffy, it likes to be cleaner than Rufus, that's a dog name, right. but whatever <laughs> the, the other cat. Um, because if they have multiple cats, sometimes they'll pick up on that. Like, oh yeah, that, you know, the one we're seeing does look yeah. a lot more. I think that's, I think that's great. And, and another question that I use that's similar is, you know, you ask, is the pet itchy? And then sometimes they'll give you an answer just because you're a doctor and they're trying to give you an answer. But then I'll sometimes follow it up. If I, if I see them sort of hedging, I'll follow it up with, if I didn't ask you about it, would you complain about it? Yeah. And, and I think that that might be more helpful with dogs because as we have mentioned, cats can be the closet lickers and scratchers. Um, so with cats, it's, a, it's perhaps more valuable to go by the lesions on the cat rather than what the owner is describing. Yeah. And the nice thing I feel like about cats, especially those bald belly cats is if, if you're just in doubt or the owner just thinks, no, I really don't think it's cause they're licking or chewing. You can always trichogram them, like pluck some hairs and look under the microscope to see if you see that tapered edge. I don't feel like that. I have to do that very often, but again, we're probably getting a different subset of, you know, owners that are willing to see a specialist by then they kind of accepted that there's a dermatologic problem. That's but right. That's right. Um, I think that, you know, then there's the other caveat about our bald belly cats, quote, crazy. Um, right. So, and, and owners will say that, or they'll, they'll use other vernacular, OCD, all of those things. Um, and for both canine and feline patients, when I get that question, sometimes in the history, there's been a period where that pet has been on steroids. Right. And then you can follow up with, were the lesions better when the pet was on steroids? 
And that to me really rules out any type of mental or emotional um, imbalance or disturbance because if, you know, steroids are anti-inflammatory and antipyretic. And so a steroid is going to treat pruritus. It's not going to treat crazy. And in fact, it might make crazy worse. So, yeah. so I, I, I tend to use that part of the history um, to, to guide what might be going on. And I think it's also really important to mention that the number of cats that are actually licking out their fur because they are emotionally unwell is the minority. Yep. The vast majority of those cats are going to be allergic. So before you reach for any, you know, mood altering medications, I would always do a full dermatologic workup. I totally agree. And actually one of my um, really good friends, Chris Pockle, who's a behaviorist in the Portland area, we've recently done some CE together and talked about just that. And as a behaviorist, he's like, I pretty much want overgrooming cats to see you first. Like yeah. it's just not that common that truly it can happen, but it just like you said, he usually wants all the other stuff rolled out first. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, we'll talk about flea control, good flea control, some sort of antipyretic trial, whatever that looks like, which in cats often will be things like steroids. And you're absolutely right. Like if they respond to steroids, that pretty much kind of tells you your answer. Yeah. Um, and more likely than not, it is going to be associated with some sort of hypersensitivity disorder. Right. I think also historical questions about how the cat acts at home and with, other, with the other cats, the other family members, does the cat seem to behave like a normal cat or do they seem crazy? And also as the veterinarian, we see cats all the time in exam rooms. And if I walk into a room and here's a very confident feline, you know, strutting around the exam room and coming right up to me when I put my, you know, pointer finger out towards its nose and sort of rubbing its little head against me, that is a emotionally secure cat, yeah. you know? And I, and I, and I try to keep those little pieces of the history as supportive of a diagnosis of, of allergy rather than crazy. Yeah, no, I think that's fantastic. Uh, switching gears to kind of the age old question and argument that even as specialists we have with a lot of feline owners, the importance of flea prevention, especially in cats that are just, you know, strictly indoors, like say not even a catio, like they just stay indoors besides the occasional trip to the vet, which they maybe don't do that often. Mm -hmm. What is your thoughts on the importance of that? And besides flea control for that cat, what about other cats in the household, even if they're not paritic and they're all indoor? My, my belief is any itchy animal should be on flea prevention year round period. Yeah. That's, that's really the right treatment um, I, you know, practice in Los Angeles. I always have. Um, there are a lot of clients that are adverse to using flea medications due to, you know, concern for side effects, however warranted those concerns may be. So I do get a lot of pushback. Um, sometimes I'm a little bit more lenient, but I would say the only time that I might be okay with being lax about flea control would be a situation where there is only one pet, which is that cat, and it lives exclusively indoors, and it has been in the same home for years and years and years. Because, you know, think about people that, you know, that move to a new home. 
because of the life cycle of fleas where the the female starts biting the animal within seconds, starts to lay eggs within 24 hours, the eggs fall off into the environment and they can stay there for six weeks to six months. If you move into a new home where the people before you had pets and maybe their pets were not on flea control and now you move into that home, if your pet isn't protected and eggs from the previous pet are now hatching and jumping onto the cat, you know, that's where you're going to get that break um, in, in flea exposure. So the safest thing is be on flea control year round. And, and also when somebody comes to a dermatology appointment, that's an expensive appointment. And so they really should have done, they should do everything that they possibly can to make that appointment as efficient as can be. Um, and so that's why I would, I would say to, to all the general practitioners out there or anyone who's referring to a dermatologist, we absolutely want these pets to be on consistent flea control because I, I hate to have a client come in and ha you know wait until they can get an appointment with me and it's an expensive appointment and then I find fleas. It just, it seems like a little bit of a waste. So so, so putting them on flea control year round is, is really the right thing to do. Yeah. And I think, uh, and we know that there's studies where, you know, even if they're indoors, like you said, who was there before, like lived in the home before they lived in the apartment before the other thing is like door, it's just like with pollens. Like we see lots of indoor cats that can be allergic to pollens and not, you know, pollens, not dust mites or indoor things, but pollens because windows open and doors open. And if they have a dog at home that goes outside, like lots of things can come in the doorway. So there's lots of studies that can find, you know, they investigate the carpet can find tons of, you know, flea eggs or different parts of, like different types of um, stages of the flea that are just living in the home as much as we don't want to believe that. Like, you know, I don't want to believe my carpet probably could have fleas and dust mites in it either, but I'm sure it does along with Cheerio dust and, uh, uh -huh. you know, spit up stains that I didn't catch. But the other thing I like to tell owners is like, let's at least rule the easy things out. Like yeah. if we... I, I kind of give them an out and everyone's going to be different on this, but if I get someone who hesitates and sometimes you just can't get through, you do your best, you say they declined and like you and I will be diligent. Like every recheck if the, the pet's not better. I'm like, well, just remember, like, I'm really worried. That's a component. One, now we have products, even for cats that can kill lots of different itchy parasites. Right. So another thing I'll tell owners as well, if, if there's any concern of any ectoparasite, not even just people get really offended by fleas, mm -hmm. then, you know, we can at least spend a couple months ruling that out. Cause if your cat's significantly better, and especially with cats where we are limited on treatments, like mm -hmm. if I find out that adding this in, that's all your cat needs the rest of its life versus chronic steroids and antibiotics. Awesome. Right. If we commit to it for a few months and you're just even though I still believe your cat should be on it, you just really feel like at the end of the few months, if we're, if it hasn't helped say the most, or like maybe it helps a little bit, not, we also have environmental allergies and you really, truly like don't want to do it. At least we've tried and ruled it out though. I would still recommend your pet stays on it. Cause we know cats have environmental allergies can still have, you know, concurrent flea hypersensitivity, but giving people that at least option that at least let me see how much it really matters. It's kind of the same 
philosophy I have with food. It's like, if yeah, you give me that time. I'll give you, I'll give you an out, but you don't want to have to keep seeing me if it's as easy as flea control. That's right. And, and I think that those, those points are good to hit on the, you know, you don't want to keep seeing me, meaning, you know, this is an expensive appointment point. Yep. The other parasites point I think is really good too. Um, because, you know, lice is a great example. So mm -hmm. some of my clients live closer to the desert where there, there really aren't fleas, but those dogs I've seen come in with lice. And, and that's a good way to kind of scare people, if you will. And then, you know, further your point about it's not better to treat them with steroids than it is, you know, if, if withholding the flea control means that they get more steroids and antibiotics, you're not helping that pet. You're not doing the best thing by that pet. It's yep. far safer to give them flea medicine than repeated course of steroids and antibiotics. So, yep. And on the other side of the initial question, like I, I do think we have to be diligent too, especially again, at least for that, at least for a few months to really see how much improvement happens to really suggest to the owner that they have the other pets in the household on good flea control too. Uh, even if they're not itchy, if they're not sensitive, but maybe they're just bringing in a few different, you know, maybe if a couple fleas come in on them and it jumps onto the allergic pet and they're getting itchy, like we're just really trying to minimize the exposure for the allergic pet in general. So I'm also really trying to ask them like, what are the other cats or dogs on in the household? Let's make sure it's a good quality flea product while we're getting your allergic pet figured out. And then at the end of that, again, if we don't feel like it really helped or you know, maybe they were on a certain product that I don't think is beneficial for an allergic pet. We up it to something like an isoxazoline or whatever it's going to be for that time period. And at the end of it, we have a stable allergic patient. Like we can always talk about other options for flea control for the non-allergic pet. But I really try to control the environment as much as I can because I've had that make a huge difference. Yeah, and I think that we frame that, you know, you use the analogy about a food trial. I think it's the same framework where this, you know, flea control plan for all the pets in the house, this is a diagnostic test. This is in lieu of, you know, for other diseases, you might need to do x-rays or a CT scan or an MRI. This is one of our diagnostic tests. Mm -hmm. And it, it seems like it's a treatment, but it's but it's really a test. And in in the search of finding the right diagnosis and being able to treat the pet most appropriately, it's a very safe and relatively inexpensive thing to do. Yep. Absolutely. Now talking about food, since you kind of like transitioned us over to that, um, how do you approach diet trials in cats? Let's say like as far as the initial exam and starting that process and then, um, you know, do you use antiprotics while you're starting it? Like what's kind of your, knowing every case is different, but what's your standard protocol on that? That's a tough one, and every case is different. Yeah. Um, so food trials are not worth doing unless they can be done right. There's yep. no such thing as a 99% accurate food trial. It can't, it can't be that way. So the first thing I do is try to sort of suss out whether or not I think that's possible. And sometimes that's just a, measure, a matter of asking um, if that's possible. Sometimes it's obvious to you, you know, if the owner has 14 cats or if you ask them how many cats they have and they tell you that is a need to know basis. <laughs> have you, you had know, that happen? 
Uh-huh. Oh. <laughs> yeah, more than once. And so those situations, I just know that it's not going to be worth it. Um, but if we have a situation where, you know, the, 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 in some ways, cats are easier to food trial than dogs are because they're less of, you know, table counter surfers. They are less begging for treats at the dinner table. Um, they're less coming up to your toddler and stealing their peanut butter and jelly sandwich. Like they, in some ways are easier. So if you have, let's say the perfect situation, you know, one adult or two adults and one cat um, and no other pets, that would be the, the prime situation where we should give it a try. Um, you know, I, I shy away a little bit from home cooking for cats. Mm -hmm. I think that if somebody, if that's really important to them, you know, you get those clients who are violently averse to commercial diets. If there's somebody like that, then I would refer them to a nutritionist. Um, but it, for the most part, uh, I like the rabbit-based diets for cats. I think they're really palatable. Um, and, you know, the Royal Canin makes a good one. Rain Clinical Nutrition makes a good one. So the, the hydrolyzed diets, I think, are less tasty, and it sort of depends on the cat. Um, but, but that's really where I tend to go. And sometimes I also feel like I'm not sure if it's food-related, um, but I'm very, very sure that there's a pollen component here. And if you have that perfect situation of one or two adults and one cat, why not put the diet in too, sort of as a just in case insurance policy because the cat has to eat something mm -hmm. and if you're so lucky that it's a cat that's not that picky in a perfect environment where he's not going to be able to get many other foods i think it's a why not type of a situation yeah i agree with a lot of what you said i for i just i definitely think the important thing you hit on first was is it realistic for the owner because mm -hmm. you know at least cats are smaller so it's not like a great Dane that goes on an expensive prescription based diet, but it's still an expense and still something they have to do. And it's just not worth the time or money or effort if it's not going to happen. So I mm -hmm. ask owners and I've pushed off diet trials before when I know it's not the right time. Like, you know, it's, it's December 1st and family's in town for a month because of the holidays. And there's no way, there's no way grandma's not going to give like the cat treats or let mm -hmm. her, let the cat nibble on chicken. I'm like, well then let's start the diet trial in January because it's right. not, it's not worth it. We don't really know. So I totally agree with you on that. Just finding if it's realistic. Um, and then I, I tend to use, it depends on the cat and if what they need as far as do they need something like a uh, canned food, I will use hydrolyzed. I've actually had a couple of cats that they have, uh, done even other hydrolyzed diets or novel protein diets. And then they will, they've done amazing in Altamino, like very severely allergic cats. I have two in particular where it was like renowned for the cat. Once we switched, like anal gland issues, head and neck paritis, which we know in cats, um, we get more suspicious of things like food allergy. If they're really head and neck paritic, of course you have to rule out things like parasites too. Kind of flipping back to that parasite control. If I'm going to start a diet trial, I also really, really want that cat on a quality parasite control because I really think we have to have everything um, under control so we can really see the maximum benefit. Um, so like if the pets say flea and, um, food allergic, 
and we put them on a food and they get better over two months, but there's still some degree of pathology to their skin or they're still pruritic. And the, even if they're better, the owner may just think, well, it didn't work. So at a minimum, I usually want them on really good flea control and switch them to the diet. If they're just tearing themselves apart, I will put them on something like a short course of steroids. Um, I have used things like Atopica, like if I can't, but sometimes it just takes a little longer to work, even if it's just a couple weeks to knock it down a bit. But it's really important if you are going to do that, you let the owners know it's the steroid. Like sometimes I've had owners call back like the week after and they're like, this diet's the best thing ever. I'm like, that's the steroid. Like that's, <laughs> that's not the food within three or four days. But you're, you're right, it's case-to-case -case dependent. It really depends on the severity, the comfort level of their pet. Um, you know, do they have infection or not? If they have a rip-roaring infection and we're starting a diet trial, I may just treat them with antibiotics first and not put them on something like right. an antipyritic if I don't need to. And we'll kind of evaluate in a few weeks where we're sitting. Yeah, I think a you know, starter steroid course, um, I do that commonly. I, I, I wouldn't do it if the cat wasn't very severe, but yeah. if they, if they need it, you know, and we know that even if we're right, that this diet is going to fix all this cat's problems, it's not going to happen that day or the next day. And if the cat is really suffering, um, I, I do give a lot of Depomedrol injections. Like I will admit that I, when I do it, I try to be as responsible as possible. So meaning I'm listening to the cat's heart, making sure that there's no murmur. I'm checking, in, in most cases, uh, full blood, blood work, CBC, chemistry, check the fructosamine, you know, check for glucosuria, ketonuria. Um, and, and none of that is going to be a guarantee that they're not going to have a side effect. But I feel like it's as best as I can do. And... Depomedrol is great because it lasts for about four to six weeks, which is about how long it takes to see response to a diet. So as that shot is wearing off, if the cat doesn't relapse, then everybody's happy and it just keeps eating that food. Yeah. And I'm similar, but I, as far as steroids, I just tend to be an oral administer. So mm -hmm. a lot of starting them on, which I understand cats are difficult and we are, we're going to talk a little bit about that as far as giving oral meds too, but if they will... I'll start them on a tapering course of oral prednisolone or medrol, depending on the cat. Um, and then usually I see them back, depending on infection and if it was there, about the three to four week mark. And then we'll kind of see like if they're great and wonderful, then we try to come off. So kind of a similar scenario, but with the oral version of the steroid. Um, and then talking about treatment options and it's kind of the elephant in the room. There's only so many treatment options we have for cats and cats are notorious for I always like tell owners, like they always feel guilty. I feel like, and they're like, well, I don't take oral meds well, or they hated, you know, this medication. I'm like, yeah, that's a cat. Like, like yeah. that's just a cat. Um, you know, what are your, so you mentioned like steroids, as far as antipyritics, are you kind of relying on that and cyclosporin or what are your kind of go-to? Uh, so I'm, I'm a huge fan of Atopica, both for cats and for dogs. Um, it's just a very like broad spectrum anti-inflammatory and we've had it, you know, we've had cyclosporin for decades. There's generic versions, there's tons of research on it. So we know about the safety, we know what to expect. Um, there's drawbacks with, with Atopica for sure. I think the primary one for cats is just their tolerance to be medicated orally. So yeah. 
Some of them, you can't squirt that liquid in their mouth no matter what you do. Um, and I agree with you that like, I would never blame an owner for that. I had a cat that I tried, I as a veterinarian tried to give him a pill and I would have lost an eye. Like that cat, if he needed a medication, um, it, I would have, he would have died of the disease that he had because he couldn't be medicated. So it's not the owner's fault. Um, I, it's, it is really tragic that there's not very many options for our feline patients compared to what we have for dogs. So it's sad. Um, with the Atopica liquid, like I will have them try mixing it with food, with tuna juice, if they're not food allergic, with non-dairy creamer, sometimes they like that, with butter. Um, I've had cats take Atopica capsules in pill pockets before. So some cats are really food motivated and they'll do that. Um, but I really, I really, really like Atopica also because you can commonly, once, once you've given it daily for a month and the cat is, is better, which the pollen allergic ones, most of them will be, um, then you can usually reduce it. And when I reduce it, I do that by skipping days, not by lowering the volume per day, because I just feel like it's the catching of the cat and the, and the putting of something in the cat's mouth that is really bothersome to the patient. So I would, I would have them skip days before I would have them reduce the, the volume. Um, but, uh, you know, that, all that is to say that immunotherapy is without question the best treatment for a cat who's got pollen or dust allergy. And not only because of the safety profile and because of the fact that it's the only treatment that actually addresses the underlying cause of the disease in changing the immune system away from, you know, making those allergic antibodies and um, improving the sort of stop signals of the immune system so that we don't have this exacerbated inflammatory response. But from the perspective of the cat, if I were a cat, I would rather be injected with something subcutaneously every two weeks than have my owner catch me every day to put something in my mouth. You know, whether it be a topica five days a week or every other day, I would still rather have the injection. Um, now, with sublingual, that may not apply because cats, they, again, sometimes it's just the catching them and medicating them that they, that they don't like. But with the subcutaneous immunotherapy, I just think it is the nicest, kindest thing to do for the patient from a, a, a perspective of their sort of autonomy. And the thing that you, beautifully hit home, which was I, what, what I was hoping we would is, I mean, for all patients, but especially cats with our limitations with, you know, they're in every, there's some cats that are totally fine to take meds, but if you generalize them and put them into the fact that they tend to be resistant to oral medications, they're a very isolated creature. They're going to, you know, hide from the owner if they're not feeling well, or they're going to hide from the owner if they hate the fact that they're getting medicated. All this comes back to the fact that the workup is so important. And yeah. actually figuring out what the trigger is, is so important because if it is something as easy as, you know, flea control and food change, um, or referring them to get allergy tested, which I could not agree with you more. I find that cats tend to be very tolerant of immunotherapy injections. Mm -hmm. Um, and I feel like they, I don't know if we have an actual like paper to support it, but I do feel like they tend to do quite well, maybe even better than some of our canine patients. I agree with you. I mean, yeah. I don't know that there's any 
any support other than anecdotal clinical experience. But I feel like cats, it's, it's a yes or no. It's a, they either respond to it and they do great. And I think about two thirds of them do. And then that's all that they need. Whereas with dogs, I feel like it's a little bit more of a spectrum where some dogs get a hundred percent benefit from the shots. Some dogs get you know, 50%, they still need something else every now and then, they still flare every now and then. I think with cats, there's so many cats that are just on shots, get one every two weeks, come see me once a year, and that's it. And yeah. and to be able to offer our feline patients that opportunity, um, I, I think that that's, that's the best thing for that cat. Yeah. What do you, um, so have you ever used the off labely, of course, Apoquil in cats? I never have. Um, okay. I never, I never have personally because uh, it 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 sounds like in order for it to be really effective, the dose has to be TID and close to milligram per kilogram. And I just think that cats don't like TID meds, nor do owners. I've always seen. So when I I you only use it in a handful of cats, and the reason I I feel. So from the research I have seen, I feel comfortable trying it because it's off label. I want to use on label stuff first. Mm-hmm. Um, but what I've seen is like a mig per pig twice daily. And it still goes back to the whole aspect of a cat actually wanting to take a medication twice daily. Um, of sure. course, this is again, off label. It's not, it's just what's in the literature for things like mastocytosis and some other cases. And I feel like it's hit or miss, like the, the handful of cases I've used it in, um, some have just not responded at all. Some it's helped. I've never personally had one. I've like relied on being on it long-term. It's more, we're using it while we get them on immunotherapy or temporarily, or, you know, they completely would not do atopica in capsule or liquid form and they're diabetic or something like that. Um, right. and I've heard reports from, um, other dermatologists where they've had using cats for, um, I know one case I heard about, uh, uh, seen by like a double boarded internist slash dermatologist, which kudos to anyone who wants to get boarded in more than one thing. That is, <laughs> that sounds it's like a lot of work. Um, but she had mentioned like she had a cat that had to be on steroids and was diabetic and the apical, like at least allowed them to get on a, you know, level of steroids that it sounded like a nightmare case, but a level of steroids that it could be sustainable with its diabetes. So that's going to be an extreme case. But I think the important thing to realize is that it is off label. And um, we have some literature on it, but not as much, obviously, because it's not labeled for them. And it does seem like the half life is shorter. So they tend to need more. And it's just difficult because often that's the reason they won't take things like etopica or lotus steroid is they don't want to be medicated. So it just makes it a bit more difficult to accept having to give that more often in our feline patients. Yeah. I mean, in veterinary medicine as a whole, there are so many, you know, just boundaries and barriers that we often have to navigate. Um, But I think for me, the reason that I have never reached for Apical is exactly that. It's like BID dosing, TID dosing, whatever you say. Like I don't even use Clavamox in cats because that BID dosing, I just think is so objectionable to the cat. So when you have something like, uh, you know, an oral steroid, some cats can be managed on an oral steroid twice a week or once a week. Um, And same thing with the atopica, it has that long half-life. And after you get past that month of daily dosing, you can almost always get them onto, you know, five days a week or every other day. And I just, you know, I really 
try to think of what the cat would want the most and what would be, you know, what the cat would be most amenable to. And, and that's why, um, you know, I'd really have to be pushed against a wall to use Apoquel. Like I would have to probably have them fail immunotherapy as well. Um, but I just don't have that many cats fail immunotherapy. I think it, I think it's generally pretty effective for them. Yeah, no, I think I agree. Like I said, anecdotally, I feel like they do well, especially asthmatic cats. Like I just think mm-hmm. asthmatic cats, even if they're not a hundred percent controlled on it, which I th- feel like a lot are, but the ones that are referred to me, like they're on oral steroids and inhalers and all these things more often than not, like, I can't remember the last one that a hundred percent failed were at least able to minimize mm-hmm. medications, yeah. if not dramatically minimize, minimize medications with the use of immunotherapy. And that's kind of where I want to like, so the last thing I wanted to discuss, um, is allergy testing cats. So, mm-hmm. and this is a, different across the board for all dermatologists, like how we allergy test and what we do when you allergy test cats, like, what are you doing? And are you, do you have someone sublingual? Like what are your experiences with injectable sublingual and doing allergy testing in cats? So, um, you know, as I mentioned, I think that I think that for cats being on subcutaneous immunotherapy is just better like tolerated. Um, it doesn't mean that it's, it's not necessarily more effective, but it is more effective if the, if that's the only thing the cat's going to let you do. So I have some cat patients on sublingual immunotherapy, but those are, um, you know, really friendly cats where the owners are, are scared of needles or don't want to do needles. Um, and then in terms of the testing, um, we, within the past year at MASH, we have started doing intradermal testing in, in cats. Um, and I've been really happy with it. I, I, I tell clients that, you know, if I'm going to make immunotherapy and we're hoping that this works because it will be a very natural, safe therapy that's, that's well tolerated. Um, and we're really, really betting on it working. I want to make that recipe using the most amount of data possible. And so the, the blood allergy tests I do, um, and, and, and that's because IgE antibody is extremely important in the allergic response. So we, we, that information is good, but that's not the whole story. And the intradermal allergy test gives you really a, a model of what's actually happening in the world where pollens and dusts and insects and molds are, are coming into contact with this patient's skin and, and causing an inflammatory response. And so with the intradermal test, we can really see all of the inflammatory mediators of the immune system at play in the creation of that wheel. Um, so my, my preference, and of course you don't always get to do this because of either financial constraints or sometimes pets can't be withdrawn from steroids because they would be inhumanely itchy. Um, but my preference is to do both the serum test and the intradermal test and then to make the, the recipe based on both. Yeah, I, same. Uh, I, I tell owners something very similar that, and this is debated even in our field for the people listening. Like I get asked all the time, like, well, do you only do this or that? Like this is widely debated even within the dermatology field. Um, and for me, like, especially if we're, I, I would prefer skin testing for everything you said, do you guys do IV fluorescein or are you doing just uh, intradermal without it? We do the fluorescein. Okay. So I think that helps. Um, I can still feel, I feel comfortable reading cat skin tests without the fluorescein, but I do think the fluorescein is, is nice and enhances it because 
They just don't seem to get as much as the erythema and pop that some dogs do. And some dogs are actually really hard to read too. Like they all react differently yeah. even with their histamine. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I agree. I mean, I think that the, you need to have the timing of the test is really a little more important with cats. The size of the wheel is not going to stay as long as for a dog. Um, but the floor scene, like it doesn't add that much cost. So for, for, for what it, it gives to us in terms of you can really visually see just like you can with a dog with a real classic erythema that will happen with, you know, some of the four reactions the grade four reactions that the fluorescein just, I think helps, you know, elucidate that a little further. Yeah. And for people who aren't familiar with it, cause it's newer and, and not everyone's necessarily doing it yet. Um, in cats, there's some research, um, and some protocols where we can actually skin test them and use IV fluorescein. They have a catheter in their vein and we inject it. Um, it's timed very specifically depending on the protocol, because it does only last so long and cats sometimes drop their positives pretty quickly, but it enhances. And then we read it, um, you know, with the UV light or wood slamp, and it just really helps to enhance some of those positives. But similar to you, like I tell owners, you know, there's a lot of debate in our field about this. Um, my preference is to interdermal test. I just feel like the skin's the issue. We're injecting something into the skin and seeing how it reacts. But if there's not a financial concern, I like to be in a, data collector or an information gatherer, like if we're going to put the time and effort into putting them on immunotherapy, I want as much information about your pet as possible. And so, and I have like had some pretty crazy high positives and, you know, there's only a few serum allergy tests that are really supported with literature to have some benefit to them. But I've had some really, really strong positives. Um, I've caught for some reason on the serum test and not on the skin test that I, I really do feel like makes a difference. And when you're talking about something that's not invasive, like if you're going to already sedate them to do a skin test and you're just drawing a blood sample on top of it, as long as there's not a financial constraint, then, then we will, will suggest doing both. But like you said, sometimes you have cats that's just not realistic. They can get off steroids. So then we will just do a serum test. It's also important to point out, we're only talking about environmental testing here, not food testing. So that's not really validated any dermatologist I know suggests doing that. Um, and I agree. I think most of my cats end up on subcutaneous. I have had some where they just get really resistant to the shot, but they could care less about oral meds. I guess they're like unicorn cats. So <laughs> occasionally, like I have had some that do um, really well with sublingual immunotherapy or will start on subcutaneous and it just is not going to happen. And so then we'll flip to sublingual and they'll do better. Um, but yeah, I'd agree. Most of the time, if we're looking at the cat in a general sense, the less we can medicate them, the better. <laughs> so yeah, yeah. doing something like subcutaneous does seem to be more successful in a majority of them, but either can be done. Mm -hmm. Well, I just want to thank you for carving out time to talk about cats. Um, I know it's one of your passions and definitely something that I'm hoping we'll get more and more you know, the more treatments and more diagnostics and more experience we all can get with feline dermatology, the better, especially as we are seeing cats on the rise. And I just appreciate the time that you gave today and your expertise. Um, and maybe I'll just see if I can loop you into another cat podcast in the future. I would love that. It's been a real pleasure talking to you. Um, you know, I, I always enjoy our, our conversations and it, it's, 
it's better for our patients for us to communicate, you know, just as a community, as veterinarians, the more that we can talk to each other about what we're doing, what's working, what's not working, um, you know, it furthers the goal that we all had when we started out on this journey back, you know, back in college when we decided to to go down this primrose path. Um, so, you know, I think we sometimes get isolated in our respective practices and it's just really critical to, to continue furthering the conversation. So really happy to be here. Thank you so much for inviting me. Yeah, I mean, you hit on the whole point, honestly, as we end, the reason I even want to start the podcast, some people, you know, were like, oh, it's, you know, we love how you do things. But honestly, a part of it was having these discussions, like, mm -hmm. because we learn things from each other, even as specialists, like I learn things, every interview I do about how to communicate to the client, like different diagnostic tests, like, you know, using certain treatments or using things in a certain way. So I think that's exactly right. Any type of medicine we're in, whether we're a specialist in our field or general practitioner, like we should always be learning from each other. I learn stuff from my techs all the time. Like my technicians are, they'll mention something like, should you have done that? Have you thought about this on that patient? I'm like, oh, that's a really great idea. So you're absolutely right. We can all learn from each other. And thank you for letting, for letting me learn from you today. Thank you. not just small dogs and though feline dermatology can be frustrating and have limitations i hope you found out after today's episode there's a lot we can do to help these itchy felines as always if you enjoy the podcast please subscribe and give it a rating hopefully a good one so we can keep reaching more veterinarians and most importantly helping more 